UNFTR. There are those who contend that it does not benefit African Americans to, to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a, less, a, a slower track school where they do well. Uh, one, of, one of the briefs uh, uh, pointed out that, uh, that most, of the, most of the black uh, scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. So th- this they court come from lesser schools where they do not feel uh, that, they're, uh, that they're being pushed ahead in, in classes that are too, too fast for them. This so, court, so I, you know, I'm, I'm just not impressed by the fact that, that the University of Texas may have fewer. Maybe it ought to have fewer. And maybe some, you know, when you take more, the number of blacks, really competent blacks admitted to lesser schools turns out to be less. And, and I, I don't think it, it, it stands to reason that it's a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who But it's fun because he curses No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. If civics class is a distant memory, that's the pertinent part of the 14th Amendment that guarantees equal protection for all U.S. citizens under the law. This amendment is at the center of the debate raging over affirmative action, a policy that allows organizations the discretion to determine policy, such as admission standards at colleges and universities, based upon race, ethnicity, gender, and other qualified characteristics. The current cases, combined into one that was recently argued at the Supreme Court, might spell the end for affirmative action as we know it in this country. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Brie X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, G Wookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. Chapter 1 Affirmative Action Has Always Been Hanging by a Thread. The clip you heard at the top of the show is deceased Supreme Court judge and Supreme Racist Antonine Scalia questioning the attorney for the defendant in Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin. This was the second go-around for Fisher in front of the Supreme Court, one of the most notable cases against affirmative action. In 2008, a young woman in Texas named Abigail Fisher was denied admission to UT Austin based upon a formula derived by the university whereby the top 10% of graduates within Texas would be automatically accepted, and race, among other standards, would be considered for anyone outside of this tier. Fisher argued that on merit, she would have been admitted as she was just outside the 10% and had a solid list of extracurricular activities and interests and that she was excluded from attending because she was Caucasian. 
The case was first heard by the court to determine whether the appellate division had applied the correct standards to the case. In a 7-1 decision, with Elena Kagan abstaining, it was remanded to the Fifth Circuit under a more narrow guideline called strict scrutiny. When the Fifth Circuit once again decided in favor of the university, the Supreme Court decided to hear the case again in 2015. That's when Scalia offered this unvarnished racist line of questioning. The university narrowly survived the appeal, even with Kagan on the sidelines due to a conflict of interest, because Scalia died before the decision was handed down. Affirmative action has been the subject of debate for a long time. While the concept is mostly understood today in the context of university admissions, the phrase first appeared in the Wagner Act of 1935, which established the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB for short. According to Smithsonian Magazine, the law was explicit in its denunciation of discriminatory labor practices and required companies to, quote, take such affirmative action, including reinstatement of employees with or without back pay, end quote, in cases of discrimination. After the Wagner Act was passed, it took nearly 30 years for any president to use the term in our modern context, according to the magazine, citing JFK's Executive Order 10925, in which he said government contractors, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard for their race, creed, color, or national origin, end quote. The term became more ubiquitous during LBJ's term and was, ironically, bolstered by Tricky Dick, who issued his own executive order on equal employment in 1969. For much of the 20th century, the concept of affirmative action was relegated to the workforce, which had historically been inaccessible to large swaths of black America. Before JFK's executive order on fair employment practices, it was FDR in June of 1941 who was pressured into issuing an order banning discrimination in defense industries and government in response to A. Philip Randolph's threat of a massive march on Washington amid the buildup to the country's entrance into World War II. Before we dig into the case in front of the Supreme Court and the likelihood that they are about to end this historic policy, I think it's important to work through some crucial concepts and language. In the historical sense, as we just run through, affirmative action has been more of a preventive policy designed to root out discriminatory practices. In this sense, the term itself is kind of a misnomer and holds a different meaning than the concept the Supreme Court is deciding, which is far more narrow. You have this standard of the 14th Amendment primarily created to extend rights to formerly enslaved people in the United States, and hundreds of cases that rest on this logic to either affirm or deny rights. In the case of anti-discrimination legislation or executive orders, most references to affirmative action are to affirm the anti-discriminatory nature intended by the 14th Amendment. So this is an important distinction because the word affirmative is positive in nature. It's affirming, deliberate. Whereas anti-discrimination is inherently negative and defensive. It's do this versus don't do this. That strikes at the complicated nature of what this current case is all about. If universities were still denying people based upon race, gender, or ethnicity, it's a slam dunk, don't do this, because it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But when a university actively admits or affirms the rights of a particular class over another, it's taking a positive or affirming action. Conservatives, and even some liberals, however, argue that the flip side of this affirmative action is necessarily the denial of someone else's rights based upon the same logic. Your affirmation 
is my denial. All right, stop drilling. You hit oil already. Yep, we got it. All right, well, the reason I'm being so specific about this point, my dear friends and comrades, is because the precedent that has held together affirmative action by a thread is one that both sides originally felt they lost and won. And it all came down to the interpretation of the 14th Amendment, a justice that shocked everyone who knew the courts and one of the lions of the legal profession who simultaneously saved affirmative action and planted the seeds for its eventual destruction. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nutty Hugger One, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Ryan F., Sultan, Specker, Terry C., William N., W. Jeremy D., and the memory of Nettie McGee. Additionally, this episode of UNFTR is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, PDX Squatch. Chapter 2. Everyone's a winner, everyone's a loser. The objective that uh, impresses itself on my mind, well, partly because uh, Dean Lowry testified it, partly because I am uh, at least in part an educator, <laughs> is the importance of including young men and women at both undergraduate colleges and the medical schools so that they, other younger boys and girls, may see, yes, it is possible uh, for a black to go to University of Minnesota or to go to Harvard or Yale. This is essential if we are ever going to give true equality in a factual sense to people because the existence or non-existence of opportunities, surely we all know, shapes people's aspirations when they're very young. Mr. Cox, uh, what if uh, Davis Medical School had decided that since the population of doctors in the uh, among minority population of doctors in California was so small uh instead of setting aside 16 seats for minority doctors they would set aside 50 seats until that balance were redressed and the minority population of doctors equaled that of the uh, pop, uh population as a whole would that be any more infirm than the program that Davis has well, I think my answer is this. There is no reason to condemn a program because of the particular number chosen. This is the thread that has held affirmative action together since 1978. It's the thread conservatives have been trying to cut and liberals have been hanging on to since this moment. In this brief exchange between famed attorney Archibald Cox, who many consider to be one of the greatest presenters in history, and conservative justice William Rehnquist holds within both the basis for upholding affirmative action and its biggest weakness. Threading the needle, in the end, is an unlikely figure named Lewis Powell, whom we've covered before in rather unflattering terms. More on him in a moment. The beginning of Cox's statement to the court contains the logic upon which the liberal side of the court, with Powell as the deciding vote, sided with. The idea that it was necessary for white students to exist within a pluralistic structure to better prepare them for the real world and to demonstrate to other black Americans in particular that higher education in the United States is attainable. Both are arguments based upon modeling 
rather than correcting a historical wrong, which is the direction that many liberals of the court hoped that it would head. In this way, Cox understood a few things. The first was the composition of the court. In his research, Cox lined up the justices based upon their prior rulings and ideological leanings. In his estimation, the idea of righting a historical wrong was a losing proposition. Not that he didn't include this in his oral arguments, mind you, but he was cognizant that the conservative wing of the court wouldn't see this logic in a favorable light. This was after the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and other decisions painstakingly won by Thurgood Marshall, among others, over the years. And it should be noted that Marshall was still on the bench for this decision. On the other hand, Rehnquist pursued an important line of questioning that derailed a complete victory for the liberal wing. The idea that the University of California had determined a hard number meant that it had created a quota of sorts. So Rehnquist pushes Cox to consider what might happen if they expanded the quota. In other words, is there a limit to the actions one could take in affirming the rights of minorities that would test the boundaries of equal protection? It was a brilliant but tough take. Alan Bakke was a competent engineer who honorably finished military service and decided that he wanted to enter the field of medicine. He considered it his calling. He was twice rejected from the University of California Medical School at Davis and sued the university claiming that he was denied equal rights. Adding to the layers of this particular case is the concept of constitutional rights and statutory rights, something the court fought bitterly over when hearing this case. A statutory right is granted under state or federal law and cannot violate a constitutional right. A constitutional right is granted equally to all citizens of the United States as outlined in the Constitution, mostly in the Bill of Rights. A difference without a distinction? Not really. The original Bakke case took aim at Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids racial or ethnic preferences in programs supported by federal funds. So whereas constitutional rights are broad, Statutory rights attempt to apply them specifically at the state and local level. These rights are updated and clarified over time through decisions and precedents that seek to incorporate a multitude of circumstances that were impossible to enumerate in the Constitution, but with an eye towards upholding the spirit. It's tricky. What's fascinating about this case, among other things, is that the University of California was in favor of it going to court. Like many other colleges and universities, UC was sensitive to the historic wrongs and desirous of doing its part to correct them. But it also had a university to run, and the diversity question was nebulous and confusing. They sought clarity as much as Baki sought a fair shake to pursue his dream. Now, for his part, Baki never once indicated personal feelings about the case and has never spoken publicly about it. He did go on to attend medical school and enjoy a full career in the medical profession, by the way. In this way, the case was tried with the best of intentions, but that doesn't mitigate the implications of the decision on an increasingly tense nation. So here's how the decision played out. The court first had to decide whether to pursue a narrow statutory framework or a broader constitutional one. The difference would have triggered a strict test of equal protection and the threat to a fundamental right, or a more moderate approach of heightened scrutiny, which allowed for nuance. Now, I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I'll leave the description there. Suffice to say, the less strict interpretation was pursued, which left wiggle room in the discussion for the surprise deciding vote cast by Lewis Powell. 
Recall in our coverage of the infamous Powell memo that Lewis Powell was a corporate lawyer and a shill for the corporate class generally, who implored the Chamber of Commerce to beat back the working class, liberal institutions of higher learning, and consumer advocates. He was rewarded by Nixon with a seat on the highest court of the land, despite never having argued a case in front of it. More importantly, in his prior life as the head of a school board, he fought fervently against integration. So appealing to Powell was a gamble on Cox's part, to say the least. What Powell objected to the most was the idea of quotas, which you heard in the second part of Rehnquist's question to Cox. He therefore ordered Bakke to be admitted to the university. However, he was swayed by the argument that a competitive process could take into account racial diversity in order to create a pluralistic environment and that it was a college's right to strive for such conditions so long as a particular quota did not definitively foreclose on anyone's opportunity. As Emily Bazelon writes in a New York Times Magazine article, quote, though Cox had no way of knowing it, his diversity rationale would become the sole basis of affirmative action in constitutional law, end quote. Chapter 3. As usual, there's a villain behind all this. Since the Bakke decision, the Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that race-conscious admission policies are constitutional, including the 2003 case Grutter v. Bollinger. Just six years ago, the court rejected arguments against affirmative action and held that diversity is a compelling interest in Fisher v. University of Texas. Interestingly, it was conservative Justice Sandra Day O'Connor who wrote the majority opinion in Grutter, and while she agreed that affirmative action was constitutional, she suggested that race-conscious admissions should be temporary, citing higher grades and improved test scores for minority applicants. That was in contrast to the views of former Justice Thurgood Marshall, who, during Bakke, felt such policies would continue, quote, for a hundred years, according to Bazelon. Not the case, argued O'Connor. She wrote, quote, accordingly, race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time. This requirement reflects that racial classifications, however compelling their goals, are potentially so dangerous that they may be employed no more broadly than the interest demands. Enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences would offend this fundamental equal protection principle. We see no reason to exempt race-conscious admissions programs from the requirements that all governmental use of race must have a logical endpoint, end quote. Well, today it seems that conservative activists have indeed found their endpoint. That the court seems poised to abolish affirmative action is partly the result of an activist base in the conservative movement that has been almost singularly focused on this issue for decades, just like the elements that were hostile toward Roe. The aforementioned Fisher v. University of Texas case in 2015, along with the pair heard by the court last year, have been orchestrated by Edward Blum, a failed political candidate turned court activist. Blum, who is not an attorney himself, is also the brainchild behind the court's eventual gutting of the landmark Voting Rights Act. In 2013, the court ruled in a 5-4 decision that jurisdictions with a history of voting discrimination no longer had to receive pre-clearance from the federal government before changing their respective voting laws. Since then, at least three dozen states have enacted voter ID laws and hundreds of polling locations have been closed across the country, making it harder for people to cast a ballot. So how did Blum do it? Apparently, his approach was so simple 
that it was ingenious. The Times reported that he Googled areas that were coming under federal scrutiny and cold called the county attorney of Shelby County, Alabama. After some research on the county attorney's part, Shelby County decided to file the suit. According to the New York Times, Blum is the puppet master behind two dozen lawsuits related to affirmative action and voting rights in recent years. In the Fisher case, Blum wasn't shy about the fact that he was looking for a white student that he could use to challenge the University of Texas at Austin's admissions policies. His friend recommended his daughter, Abigail Fisher. While they lost the case, Fisher now sits on the board of Students for Fair Admissions, along with Blum. As the paper tells it, quote, He's a matchmaker bringing together two forces, students and others who believe they are being mistreated in the name of racial justice and conservative donors who finance his work and that of the high-powered establishment Republican lawyers who take the cases to court, end quote. So after reading that last bit, we naturally decided to follow the money. Students for Fair Admissions, which Blum founded, received at least $7.7 million in contributions between 2016 and 2020, according to the tax filings published by ProPublica. Additionally, the Times reported that an organization called Donors Trust, which helps fund conservative and libertarian efforts, gave nearly $2.9 million to support Blum's work between 2010 and 2015. In an article published about a decade ago, Mother Jones described Donors Trust as the, quote, dark money ATM of the right, end quote. The magazine added that Donors Trust has, quote, steered hundreds of millions of dollars to the most influential think tanks, foundations, and advocacy groups in the conservative movement. Over the past decade, it has funded the rights assault on labor unions, climate scientists, public schools, economic regulations, and the very premise of activist government, end quote. While the organization is the public face of the conservative dark money movement, it has shielded its own donors from scrutiny by keeping them anonymous. So it's impossible to know who's really financing many of these conservative efforts, including the impending abolition of affirmative action. As often happens, this is the part of the story that rarely gets told during coverage of consequential court decisions, how money and influence shape our laws. The two cases that could decide the fate of affirmative action were combined into one, and justices heard five hours of oral arguments last November. As is typically the case, the judges' questions and reactions provide reasonable clues on how they intend to rule. And to no one's surprise, the conservative justices hinted at an end to affirmative action. Let's take Justice Clarence Thomas, who in response to the word diversity during oral arguments said, quote, I have no clue what it means, end quote. When the term underrepresented minority was uttered, Justice Samuel Alito remarked, What does that mean? So I think we can all tell where this is headed. Unlike these robed clowns, the justices who decided on Baki understood the concept of diversity given the extreme levels of racial discrimination that pervaded society at the time. And sure, things have improved for black and brown Americans in the ensuing decades, but there still remain staggering levels of racial inequality, including in education, jobs, and wealth distribution. O'Connor, in 1993, opened the door for a future court to rule that with discrimination purportedly on the decline, affirmative action and similar policies are effectively moot. Going back further, the diversity justification that appealed to Powell in 1979 seems to be the very thing that could seal the policy's fate in 2023. Chapter 4. The Unlevel Playing Field 
to rule on the basis that discrimination is less awful than it was decades earlier is to ignore reality or just plead ignorance. And the Supreme Court, a federal branch of the government, doesn't have to go too far if it wants to access data on racial disparities in the country. According to the Federal Reserve, quote, the average black or Hispanic or Latino households earn about half as much as the average white household and only own about 15 to 20 percent as much net wealth, end quote. Crucially, as the Fed points out, the racial wealth gap has actually widened over the past few decades. To that point, the Economic Policy Institute said that in 2019, black workers earned almost 25% less per hour than the average white worker, which represents a larger gap than in 1979, one year after the Supreme Court's decision in Bakke. The more you dig, the worse the disparity gets. While productivity has increased by nearly 70% since 1979, Median wages have only increased 14%, according to the Economic Policy Institute. White workers, meanwhile, have experienced a 20% median wage bump compared to 5.2% for black workers, and that's over the same time period that affirmative action has been in place. If the court goes by O'Connor's logic, then educational disparities should have leveled out since the court's 1993 ruling on race-conscious admission policies. Well, according to an analysis by Brookings, quote, educational experiences for minority students have continued to be substantially separate and unequal, end quote. Here's more of what the researchers found. Quote, two thirds of minority students still attend schools that are predominantly minority, most of them located in central cities and funded well below those in neighboring suburban districts. Recent analyses of data prepared for school finance campuses in Alabama, New Jersey, New York, Louisiana, and Texas have found that on every tangible measure, from qualified teachers to curriculum offerings, schools serving greater numbers of students of color had significantly fewer resources than schools serving mostly white students." End quote. Obviously, the systemic issues that impacted minority communities for decades haven't been solved by affirmative action programs, and that's because centuries of mistreatment, discrimination, and outright racism are impossible to solve with a single policy prescription. But gutting affirmative action would leave thousands, if not millions over time, out of the schools and programs that give them a chance to succeed. Just as the demise of Roe spawned more restrictive abortion policies around the country, in red states in particular, the end of affirmative action will make it more difficult for universities to diversify their student bodies, something they argue enhances learning. We know that states like California and Michigan have spent millions of dollars in outreach and other programs to improve diversity after race-conscious admission practices were banned in those areas. Let's use California as our example. As the most populous and one of the most diverse states in the country, the Golden State has been living the reality that many conservatives are trying to force on the rest of the nation. In 1996, California voters approved a referendum banning race and admissions decisions at public universities. In an amicus brief filed in support of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, lawyers for the University of California said the ban resulted in at least a 50% decrease in enrollment from students in, quote, underrepresented minority groups, end quote. This system has tried various efforts to improve diversity, which it still sees as part of its mission, including holistic admissions policies, expensive outreach efforts, and other programs. Despite their best efforts, there's been a noticeable drop in diversity since the 1996 ban, which the university says has been particularly harmful to Black, Latino, and Native American students who they report feeling, quote, racial isolation. In fact, the university said the ban's impact was immediate and widespread. More than two decades after being prohibited from applying race-conscious decisions in their admissions policies, the University of California still believes that a diverse student body, quote, enhances the ability of the university 
to accomplish its academic mission, end quote. In laying out its reasoning, the university cites O'Connor's own words in the Grutter decision. Just as growing up in a particular region or having particular professional experiences is likely to affect an individual's views, so too is one's own unique experience of being a racial minority in a society like our own, in which race unfortunately still matters, end quote. The same conclusion can be made today, though it appears increasingly unlikely that O'Connor's argument and Grutter would sway any of the conservatives on today's court. And that leaves universities to pick up the pieces. We mentioned how the University of California has responded specifically with costly outreach efforts, which it says has cost the system an estimated half a billion dollars. It's also tried an eligibility in local context policy, meaning a certain percentage of academically eligible students are guaranteed admission to one of the system's nine undergraduate campuses. The university also implemented a holistic review and eliminated the use of standardized tests. Despite everything, the system admitted that true progress remains elusive and that demographic data at its campuses compared to high school graduates in 2019 reveals stark disparities that undermine UC's ability to provide the educational benefits of diversity. In other words, it just ain't working. Chapter 5. Bring it home, Max. The devastating decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year to overturn Roe v. Wade was unquestionably the biggest blow to American rights in decades, with people stripped of their bodily independence. It crystallized all the fears we had about the ever-growing right-wing movement to capture the judiciary, including lower courts across the country. The overturning of Roe also confirmed long-held complaints by many in progressive circles that the Democrats were ceding control of the courts, perhaps out of sheer negligence, or more likely, massive overconfidence in their ability to win elections and, in effect, shape policy as the perpetual occupants of the White House. 2016 proved that such thinking is a farce, and maybe, in a cruel, sadistic way, we can thank Trump for exposing the Democratic Party's corrupt thinking. Trump was, and still is, mind you, a symptom of an insidious disease that has plagued this country for decades. Biden, for all the credit we want to give him for beating Trump, was not the cure. He was an ointment on the cancer that has spread through our body politic, one that has infected nearly all institutions ostensibly entrusted with serving the American public. The courts, corporate-captured regulatory agencies, the mainstream media, and so much more. It's no surprise that a plurality of Americans have lost faith in these institutions, giving figures like Trump an opening to fill the yawning void. Money and influence decide what becomes law, who lands a lifetime appointment on the most powerful court in the world, and what is considered newsworthy. When white people think about affirmative action today, it's largely pejorative. That's unscientific, of course, just an anecdotal reflection of my experience. It's not necessary. It's outdated. Quotas are bad. You can only get ahead these days if you're some sort of minority. There's nothing racist about a meritocracy. The playing field is level. After all, we even had a black president. These are things that I've heard countless times. White culture has turned the tables and adopted the posture of the aggrieved, the put-upon, the subjective. But statistics and facts, they just don't seem to matter. The most serious questioner in the current case has been newcomer Katanji Brown-Jackson, who set a rhetorical trap regarding legacies. Pointing out that status of a legacy could be considered in the constellation of non-meritocratic factors for admission, she posed a hypothetical situation. Two kids both fifth-generation North Carolinians, one white, who would be the fifth generation to attend UNC, 
one black who would be the first to attend because prior generations were specifically excluded. Whose story is more compelling? The attorney's response was that it didn't have to be taken into consideration, and in saying so, fell directly into Jackson's trap. If legacy status didn't have to be considered, then it also meant that it could be. By the same logic, race shouldn't have to be considered either, but it also could be. In this one line of questioning, Jackson exposed the entire gambit. It was never about equal protection, clarifying statutory or constitutional rights, righting a historical wrong, or even declaring an end to the need for affirmative action. It's simply about taking away the ability for a university to consider all of these things to build a more pluralistic society that offers a chance to historically marginalized citizens, to claw back hard-fought rights and opportunities, because they don't want pluralism. They want whiteness. And so, that's what they're going to get. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings, hanging out here in the studio with 99. What up, 99? Um, you know, sad things <laughs> happening. <laughs> yep. Can't we just not, like for once? You mean us? Like us, you and me specifically, not no, do this? No, like the world. Oh, the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's probably be easier for us to just stop than the world. <laughs> the, you know, the um, I, I'm really, I'm fascinated by the law because it's, it's so complicated. The Nerd. decisions are so complicated. <laughs> but for example, Jackson's question, her whole line of questioning was so fucking smart. Like I had to read it a bunch of times to be like, oh fuck, that is that is an unbelievable trap that she laid. I mean, it's just incredible. But here's what I don't understand: she has a there. She has some tie to I think it's Harvard, right? She came out of Harvard, so she had to recuse herself from that decision. But she got to sit in on the questioning for UNC. So I don't. I know they're tied together, but they have separate attorneys and separate arguments. So like when they join these things together, like can she write an opinion on one, but not the other? If they're like, there's so many nuances to this stuff that are just like kind of a mystery, even going down the, the rabbit hole of statutory versus constitutional and the understanding, like there were in Bakke, there were multiple opinions and multiple dissents throughout the process. And then there is the decision. So the multiple opinions and dissents included, okay, this isn't right. You, you, you did this on the wrong terms, send that back, remand it back to the Fifth Circuit, and then they bring it back up and they issue their opinions on whether or not they did it right. And then they all come together. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. Like if, if there's so much fucking bullshit wasn't on the line, it would be amazing just to try, just to sit there as an objective observer of our legal system and be like, wow, some really smart motherfuckers came up with this. Learning about Archibald Cox was fascinating because it's not somebody that really is in my, in my, you know, my worldview and my understanding. It wasn't in my education, but what, what a master himself. I mean, he played that court 
exactly right and probably understood the consequences of that type of decision coming out of it, but it was kind of the best that they could hope for. And also, I can't believe that this is just as recent as 1979. You know what I mean? I can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well, it's like, I guess it's like Roe in that way. It's that when you grow, so, you know, I'm, I'm 50, right? Roe v. Wade, affirmative action, these things, by the time I was a grown up, like these things were settled. These are, this is just how we did things. This was established. There would be, there would be no reason to revisit this fucking shit. You know, like it just, it's just ridiculous. And I think that leads to, I don't want to call it apathy, but. You just get used to it. You just get used you to get it. You used to having rights. <laughs> well, a guy like Blum just decides to dedicate his entire fucking life to destroy. Why? Why? What's your fucking deal, man? White supremacy? Yeah, that. It's just, it's absolutely fucking ludicrous. And, and, and God, it just breaks my brain. It breaks my heart more than my brain, but it's just, it's just nuts. Mm. So it's going down. I mean, there's no question that it's going down. They're just, they're not even close to having the votes for this thing. You know? Well, hopefully, I mean, this is naive thinking, but hopefully the universities that are already doing it right will continue to do it right even if not legally bound and universities that are more conservative leaning you know they'll they'll do you know they'll have the bare minimum of minority people like they probably already do okay so, so. But, but i was i was trying to think this through like okay what happens like why was it because california is the use case why did california why have they failed so miserably since they struck down their statutory right to be able to do this and I think it's because they, they would just they would simply be subject, subjected to so many legal challenges that it would I mean, it could put them out of business in theory. I mean, that's all they would be doing is fighting these challenges in court. So that's why they had to do this sort of this end run workaround to get there. And also it's indicative of so many larger problems. Like it's like we said in the piece, like affirmative action is not a cure at all, like it didn't fix things. So you can see people legitimately on one side of the spectrum being like, I don't care one way or the other because it wasn't working. Like we need to have another way of doing it. Okay, like I jive with that idea. Like we have more fundamental problems that create the circumstances that require affirmative action to intercede on behalf of you know a, a marginalized populations. But at the same time, while trying to correct those, you don't just pull the one thing away that's offering at least a marginal amount of relief. I wonder if there's a census of the race of people on admissions committees. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, okay, so irrespective of that though, right? Forget about who's- Forget about it. Forget about who's making the judgment call, right? Mm -hmm. So forget about who's doing that. If they want to go, so, just pure numbers, meritocracy, whatever it is, then that indicates the actual larger problem at hand. So if they say like, here's the, here's the narrow scope of determining factors, then obviously we're looking at test scores. We're looking at, you know, absences and suspensions or like all of the things that go that into it. Really? Yeah. They, I mean, well, they're going to go through their list of, of parameters. They get hundreds of thousands of applications right throughout the UC system, if we're just using them as an example. And there are some that have enough checkboxes that they just don't make the cut. 
Yeah, well, there right? goes people with maybe uh, chronic illnesses who can't go to school every day. Oh, so there's a lot of advocates that also say, listen, this isn't just a question of, of, of black Americans. This isn't, this is like, yes, there are ethnic and racial considerations to this, but what about persons with disabilities? What about anybody with sort of you know, any sort of mental mental challenges that would prevent them from that would attendance that would, that would fall under okay so physical mental whatever it is that would prevent them from accessing religious things like the schooling that i got from the person when i said that you know i was against homeschooling altogether and, and somebody an advocate was like well you know there are some cases where homeschooling is like really super important for people that just either physically or emotionally or mentally cannot attend to in class at school so there are benefits to it as well Every situation, every every case has nuances to it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess sorry not to cut you off. I guess from not being a, a legal scholar, when I think affirmative action, I don't just think like black people. I think people, minorities, whatever minority class that would be, religious yep. minority, ethnic minority, racial minority. I don't think religious minority. That's interesting. As that a Jewish break. person, I do. One of the... I'm going to mess up the case, but I can go back and look it up after. Um, so the Harvard case, what's interesting about it is that it is, it, they're claiming discrimination against overperforming Asians. That's the tact that they took there, that they're specifically denying an Asian population that is that has outstanding scores and extracurricular activities in order to fill the gaps for others. So they they flipped this they flipped the narrative. But there was precedent for that because one of the colleges, I can't remember which one it was, in history made the similar argument about Jewish people that too many Jews were getting through the system because they were outperforming the rest of the country. What, so what, right? who cares? Let the smart people be smart, no matter what religion or race they are. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, well, there's only 100 slots. You should just take the smartest people. Fine. I guess I fell, I fell into the trap. And that's why this is just a, this is an amazingly complicated situation. And I think the, I only, the only place that I can land on the whole thing is we, we were still thinking, feeling people. We understand that there is, and this was the approach that Thurgood Marshall was taking when he offered his opinion during Bakke. Now, at this time, he's not the presiding justice. He's not in the majority. So his voice is sort of diminished compared to, you know, where he was prior to this, right? And as a matter of fact, when he took the bench, he never got to be as influential on the bench as he was as, you know, probably the most successful attorney in history in arguing cases. But his, his whole thing was, no, this is writing a historical wrong. That's it. That's the only lens you need to see this through, that you cannot have 400 years of combined oppressive forces against marginalized people in this country and not then work to remedy it. The problem is there's just no convenient box to put that argument in because the jurists are always looking for the basis, the precedent and the and the legal you know framework to make that decision within. Whereas he was like, no, I don't. And now we're seeing the justices today that are in charge are making the exact argument on the flip side. They're like, no, we don't. We could just do whatever we want. Oh, Roe v. Wade is settled law. This was a, this was a fundamental right for fucking 40 years. Doesn't matter. Now it's not. So the restraint that was exercised when the, you know, the liberals were in charge of the court is now just been thrown out the window and they're making the exact same case that they were criticizing, you know, over the years. It's just it's so maddening. I think I know the answer. Segregation. 
Oh my God. Everyone can have their own school. <sighs> what else? Is it, Manny, is there a sound for a light bulb? I mean, this is it. Yeah. Separate all the blacks and whites and the Asians can have their own schools and the Jews maybe, can have their own schools. Maybe don't call them the Asians. Right? Maybe the well, Asian you're the people. one throwing segregation out here. <laughs> yeah, but the even Asians, in, the blacks, even, the whites, even the Jews. in terms of my fucked up joke, I want to be respectful. <laughs> I'm not going to you people, even in the, even well, in my dark corner. All right, I'm not even going to then keep going down that mm. path because I, I wouldn't make it out of the studio alive. Maybe we should fund HBCUs also. Like, maybe that should be part of it. Maybe. Like, fine. You want to fucking defund this? Okay. You know who's going to suffer? You know. Let's fund the schools that maybe they want to go to more anyway because they're more inclusive. You know, can't say that across the board, obviously. I don't know, but. It's so fucked up. It's just so fucked up. That I want up. segregation? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, that I'll too. have to change that. that too. I'll, I'll talk to my therapist. So now um, put that along alongside your genocidal tendencies towards older white men and you're you're becoming seriously problematic. I've been watching a lot of Alex Jones. Do you think that has something to do with it? I wouldn't think so. He's pretty balanced. He's a both sides kind of guy. All frogs are gay. I mean. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. Come again? Something about making frogs gay. I don't know. A hot... We've turned frogs gay in this country. I swear. there's. I think there's like videos and remixes and songs about it. Frogs are gay. So oh, wow. maybe Manny, maybe you can take us out on something <laughs> about gay frogs. All right. Yeah. Um, well. Anyway, we did it. We did it. We got to do, the end of this. How do thing. I? How do I get involved? How do I try to? Do I talk to? Do I talk to my senator? Who do I call to tell them to stop this? Um. So that's the with Roe. Oh my God! We it, talk about it, the need for a phone a friend. What a great question, right? Because with Roe, there is a legislative path forward. Mm-hmm. What would the affirmative action legislative path forward look like when it in and of itself was built on generalities and vagaries? It was a sense. It was a you could do something, but it wasn't firm. Because, and that's where the quota thing got really hung up. So I, th I feel like the only legislative approach would be hard quotas, which would be in and of itself, I, I can see why that would also be fucked up, but it, because you can't just pass a general law. I don't know. I don't know how the fuck that would work. That's a really great question. Well, I just mean, who can I, like, who's going to advocate against this being repealed? Who talks to the Supreme Court? So we would, we need a, if it's just going to stay in the courts, you need to flip the court again. And there needs to be a challenge against the constitutionality of this. And this, this whole process has to go over again. And we have to wait 15 years. I know, but I'm saying me as 99. Right. Can I call my senator? Can they go yell at the court? No. Who can do that? Nobody. Nobody? No. They can't even, like, influence? Like, hey, you should listen to us? Um, nope. Okay. Nope, it's six to three. Well, you're not helping me here. They won this round. They really did. <sighs> All we can do is is provide color on the nuance of this argument and, uh, and what's at stake. That's all we can do. Do you want me to find a legal expert to come on and talk about this? I think that'd be unbelievable. I think okay. it'd be amazing. I will do my research. Giddy up. All right, as always, Unfucking the Republic. That's our name, trademark. Is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Many feces. Many, 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 many feces. Mm -hmm. uh, it is lovingly produced by the omniscient Omnipotent, all powerful, all seeing, dominant force, certainly in my life, 99.
Uh, I, listen, I'm Max. I host the show. This was a special episode because... A very special episode? Nope, just special. Okay. Because uh, Manny hooked us up with the writers at Newsbeat who uh, collaborated with us on the research and some of the writing of the episode, which was pretty cool. So I want to thank him for that. And I want to thank the team over at Newsbeat for filling in some of the gaps here. Newsbeat is very good uh, at civil liberties and this type of work. So whenever things kind of lean into the criminal justice system, I like to, uh, you know, avail myself of that. So Manny, thank you for that. And uh, Tom McGovern wrote all of the uh, original music, produced all the original music for the show. We love our Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com. I wrote it. I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, go to UNFTR.com slash blog. If you want to see our essays, you can sign up. Go to bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod or UNFTR. I don't remember which one to buy books from our book list. No book love this week, but sure. There are plenty in there that apply. Um, what else? Lots uh, of good articles, though. Yeah. We'll have those in the show notes. You can go to unftr.com slash merch to buy some merch. You can go to unftr.com slash shop to buy some fair trade, native roasted, organic, bird-friendly, shade-grown coffee. Wow, you are crushing it. And uh, I think that's it. All right. See you later on, fuckers. Bye. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Turn the friggin' frogs gay. Serious crap. Gay. Frogs, friggin' frogs. It's not funny. I'm gonna say it real slow for you. Gay.